is a pleasure to be here. I've been here, as he said, on a number of occasions, and I am appreciative of every opportunity that I have. I I know a good many of you and uh, see you at various things and then get to see you here as well, know you in other avenues and know you through uh, the work of the church. And so I'm, I'm pleased to be here this morning, evening. It's evening. Either way, I'm glad to be here. Um, I was assigned the topic of distraction. Uh, well, the topic, the whole topic is distraction. I, my topic specifically is distracted by pride. The reason I was distracted when I, I mentioned my topic is I was thinking about how distracted I was apparently when I left the house. I've had to borrow a Bible. Um, and I, I wasn't going to tell them myself, but, uh, but I'm going to go ahead and do that. I, I left the house this afternoon and the Bible was in the truck. We took Daniel's car and, and so here we are. And uh, if I struggle finding a passage tonight, I don't know if, if y'all are this way, but I have my Bible. In fact, I have two of them. One stays at the office, one is it with my computer bag at all times. They're the same Bible. And so I know where on the page a passage is. And, and even if I don't know the exact reference, I know, well, it's in Timothy and it's here on the page and, and I can tell you where it is. And I may be lost tonight trying to find things in, in this Bible. Uh, so we'll do the best we can in, in terms of that. If you look at these folks here, hopefully that's not a description of what folks look like when they hear Tony or me preaching. Um, uh, I think every now and then, though, all of us at some point has been in a situation where we were distracted. This generation, and I purposefully left that vague, has been called the distracted generation, whether that is the millennials, whether that is the generation that, uh, that is younger than that. Even my generation, I guess, could be considered a distracted generation because of technology and all of the things that have come in our world today. Uh, Some statistics relative to that. Uh, Teachers were polled, in fact, almost 2,500 of them. And 90% of them said that digital tech is creating an easily distracted generation with a short attention span. 71% of of nearly 700 teachers in another study uh, said that tech is somewhat or a lot uh, hurting attention spans of our younger generation. And so a lot is said about distraction. Distraction when driving, distraction uh, at restaurants. You go out to eat and you see two people sitting together and the only way that you can tell that they're together is that they're seated at the same table. Both of them are looking down at their phones and all of that. Now, I know Don Blackwell has preached on distracted by technology, so that's not my topic. But as much as we give credence to being distracted by technology, there are a number of other things that can and do distract us. And we all, whether or not we own a smartphone, no matter what generation we consider ourselves a part of, We all can become distracted by pride. And we're going to talk this evening about being distracted by pride. And and we're going to take the long way around because first of all, what I want to do is talk a little bit about the idea of pride. Because when I say pride, not everybody believes uh, the same thing relative to what pride is. Uh, The Avid Brothers, uh, a new grass band, uh, they combined bluegrass and, and some other influences along the way as well. Uh, had a song, and, and the lyrics to the second verse begin like this, I want to have pride like my mama had.
but not like the kind in the Bible that turns you bad. You see, there's two kinds of pride. There is good pride and the kind that the singer wanted to have like his mama had. And then there's the kind that he says that the Bible talks about. That, that's the bad kind of pride. When we're talking about being distracted by pride, we first of all need to understand what it is we're talking about. Pride can be defined this way, as a noun, a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements, the achievements of those with whom one is closely associated, or from qualities or possessions that are widely admired. Uh, some of you are grandparents. And if I see you out at Dairy Queen and I say, hey, you proud of your grandkids? What are you going to say? Well, yes, and let me show you all of the pictures of my grandkids. Nowadays, we get our phones out. Let me show you what little Johnny, little Jane did. Are we proud of our grandkids? Certainly. I know at Morrison, there are a good number of folks who have antique cars, and they've, they've put a lot of time and money and effort into making those cars look nice, and they drive them to church. They're proud of those cars. There are situations in our lives where it's not wrong to be proud. We can go to the Bible, and I can give you sort of a, a case study in that. Uh, pride as a verb can be defined uh, as being especially proud of a particular quality or skill. There are things that we're good at, things that we have accomplished, that we have the right to take some measure of pride in. However, pride can also be defined as a noun, as the quality of having an excessively high opinion of oneself or one's own importance. Now that's bad pride. So we've got somebody who takes satisfaction in their achievements or the achievements of others and, and they draw some sense of pride in that. And then you've got those who believe that they're better than other people. And so you've got those two types of pride. Uh, go to Proverbs 31 this evening and let's do a, a sort of a case study in pride. I have absolutely no idea where Proverbs is in this Bible. But we'll find it. <laughs> I got it. Proverbs 31. And in, I can't even bend it back like I can. That's all right. In Proverbs chapter 31, you've got a passage with which most of us are familiar. It's describing what's been known as the virtuous woman. Verse 10, who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies. But there are a couple of things that have always stood out to me relative to the virtuous woman. We know about many of her positive qualities, but if you look at verse 18, it says, she perceiveth that her merchandise is good, her candle goeth not out by night. I've always believed that that's a, a twofold statement. Number one, it talks about how she contributes financially to her home. She creates goods or services. And in so doing, she helps to contribute to the financial well-being of her household. And she knows that what she makes is good. She takes pride in the products that she creates. If any of you ladies here quilt or sew or do any of those types of things, maybe some of you do craft work or whatever the case might be. Some of you men maybe do some of those things as well or you go out and you work in your wood shop or whatever and, and you're proud of the things that you create. This woman is proud of what she does. She perceives. She knows that what she produces is worthwhile. But I've also seen sort of a figurative understanding of that as well. She looks at herself and she looks at herself in the mirror and she says, you know... There's nothing wrong with that, is there? Ladies, how many of you got up and you got dressed and you put your makeup on and you, you picked out a nice outfit and you looked at it and said, I'm confident in the way I look. I feel okay about myself. When, when she says that she perceives her merchandise is good, I, I've, I've always taken that at least partly to mean that she recognizes and is confident in her appearance when she goes out. 
in verse 22. I know this is talking about her appearance. She makes herself clothings, coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple, two of the most expensive fabrics she could have attained. And that's what she used to clothe herself with. Is it because she's haughty and believes that she's greater than everybody else and she wants to show everybody how much money she and her husband make? No. She has some self-respect. And she has the capabilities to clothe herself in a way that she feels confident about her appearance. And so she goes out and she does that. What you see in Proverbs 31 is a woman who is proud. But not sinfully proud. You have a woman who recognizes that she, what she does is worthwhile. And she recognizes that she is, at least to her husband, an attractive lady. And she recognizes these things in a, in a humble and a modest way. And yet, still she has pride. I think it's summed up in Proverbs 31 and verse 25. Notice what it says. Strength and honor are her clothing. You see, this woman isn't so concerned about her outward appearance that it consumes her. Or that she compares herself constantly to others. You see, that's where sinful pride comes in. Rather, it's the case that this woman understood the true, the, the absolute true clothing that she needed to wear was strength and honor. It's interesting, if you look at that word honor, it's translated majesty and glory in all sorts of ways throughout the Old Testament. The ESV translates it, and I like this, dignity. Dignity. The virtuous woman had dignity. Now, what is dignity? It's the state or quality of being worthy of honor or respect. When the virtuous woman walked out into the world, she saw herself as worthy of the respect of others. We do, and I want us to listen to this, and it's true for our young men as well, but, but especially for our young women. We do them a great disservice when we convince them that their worthiness has only to do with what they look like. Our world does that, and without even knowing it, sometimes we do that as parents. We, we train our young ladies that, that their appearance is what everybody needs to judge them by. And their self-respect and their self-worth has nothing to do with what's inside of them. It has to do with what they look like. You're such a pretty little girl. Look how pretty you are. Now, now, I think my daughter's the prettiest girl in this whole place. And you'll never convince me otherwise. But her worth does not begin and end with what she looks like. There is dignity that my daughter has that she should be proud of. Who she is as a human being. She should be able to look at what she can do and what she can accomplish and say that her merchandise is good. Now you compare that though. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, a passage that, that we're probably familiar with. In like manner also that, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety. Now notice what he's fighting against. Not with broided hair, gold, pearls, costly array, but as it becometh women professing godliness with good works. What we see here is a situation where you've got a woman who, who is basing her whole self-worth and self-respect on what she looks like. Instead of focusing on the good works that she can adorn herself with, she's saying, if I put on more jewelry, if I wear more or less or better clothing, then, then people will judge me more worthy of their respect. And we have young ladies in the world who struggle with this every day. And the virtuous woman had pride that was good pride. But Paul in 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10 is battling the other kind. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter does the same thing. He encourages those godly Christian women who, who are married to, to uh, non-Christian men to 
show by their good works, their conversation, the ability to win their husbands. And then in verse 3, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating hair, wearing of gold, putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart. In that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. He goes on to say that's in the sight of God of, of great pride. What you see here is someone who can take pride in who they are and not in what they look like. They can take pride in who they are, not in what they wear. We see good, godly pride, the virtuous woman, versus those who are taught against in 1 Timothy and 1 Peter 3. So we have two kinds of pride. Healthy pride. I recognize that I am worthy of respect. And I'm not going to let somebody walk all over me. I'm not going to let somebody abuse me or take advantage of me or push me around because I'm worthy of respect. I have enough self-confidence to recognize that versus the person who says, well, I'm better than you because of what I wear, because of where I work, because of where I live, because of how much money I make, because of whatever other factor you might throw in there. Those are the two types of pride we're talking about. So when we say distracted by pride, we're not talking about being distracted by this kind of pride that is that is positive, that shows self-respect and self-worth, but we're talking about the kind of pride that, that lifts us up above other people. The kind of pride mentioned in Mark 7 and verse 22 when he describes thefts and covetousness and wickedness and deceit and lasciviousness, evil eye, blasphemy, then he mentions pride. The word translated pride here in Mark 7.22 is a compound word in the Greek and there's a particle that means above and then one that means to show oneself. So what you're doing is you're making yourself feel like you're above everybody else. Look how great I am. That type of pride is condemned by Christ. In 1 Timothy 3.6, and uh, we'll revisit this passage when talking about the qualifications for an elder. One of the things that he says is, not a novice lest being lifted up with pride. He fall in the condemnation of the devil. It's interesting, that, that whole phrase, being lifted up with pride, comes from one Greek word and it means to make a smoke. The idea I get is of a person who is overcome by their own smoke. Oh, look how great I am. I've made a story about myself and how great I am and I've, I've bought into my own story. You ever know anybody who does that? They, they've convinced themselves that they're great. They've bought into their own story. You know, when you, when you talk about sports fans, there are people who have, uh, uh, they say they've drank the Kool-Aid. What it means is that they've, just, they've bought into the preseason hype that their team is going to be great. I'm a Tennessee fan. I've done that for several years now. Before the season starts, I'm so, oh, yeah, it's going to be the year. It's going to be the year, right? And my fandom has convinced me. It's caused me to overlook all those negative qualities, and all I can see is, oh, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. Well, there are people who do that about themselves. They overlook all of their negative qualities. They overinflate how great they are. And they've bought into too much of their own smoke. And Paul says that's especially dangerous if you're in the position of an elder. And you lift yourself up over others. So that's the type of pride that we can be distracted by. I told you we'd take the long way around, so here it is tonight. In what aspects does pride have the potential to distract us. We're going to talk about three ways this evening. Number one, you can live an entire life that is distracted by pride. 
In my studies, I ran across a passage, and it, it, it is, to me, especially significant in light of this study. Malachi 3.15, he says, And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. You know, the prophets often talked about a world that was upside down. What are them that call good evil and evil good? And, and, and so we see that a number of times. And, and here Malachi says that, that he, he was living in a world where they called those who were overcome with pride, they called them happy. I think we kind of live in that world today, too. What's the number one quality people want today? Swagger. What is swagger? Well, swagger is this idea that I'm great. I can, I can saunter into a room. I can stick my chest out. And everybody will just immediately be convinced of how great I am. And we look at those people and we say, yeah, that, that. That's what I want to be. And it's sold as sort of the end-all, be-all. If I can find anything in my life, what do I need to find? I need to find swagger. That's what I need to find. You know, and it happens with athletes, and it happens with celebrities, and, and we see people doing it all the time. And, and this, this idea that, that in order to truly live the life, you've got to have swagger. And now we call the proud happy. They live a life that is characterized by sinful pride. Now again, do we need to be confident? If you're going to excel in any sport, you need to have confidence. One of the first things you need. You can't walk onto a basketball court and automatically believe you're lesser than the person you're up against. There's a difference between that and sinful pride. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, that was the scripture reading for this evening. Verse 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world. And he lists three categories of sin. You can probably quote them with me. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. If you look at the pride of life, it's very interesting. That word pride can be translated vainglory. It's described by one commentator as an insolent and vain assurance in one's own resources, in the stability of earthly things which issues in a contempt of divine laws. I can do it on my own. I don't need God. That's the pride of life. And if you rewind all the way back to the Garden of Eden, you see these three categories of sin at work. You go back to Genesis chapter 3. And you see Satan working to commit that first transgression, to tempt man for that first time. And you see it was successful. In verse 5, or verse 4 rather, the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. Now that's a lie. Verse 5, For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. There was truth in verse 5, wasn't there? That's exactly what happened. When they partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their eyes were open. And they knew right and wrong. They knew good and evil. And immediately they recognized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together. They made clothing. Why? Because... Exactly what Satan said would happen. Now notice in verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, the lust of the eyes, and that it was pleasant to the... Or that's the, the lust of the flesh. And that it was pleasant to the eyes, that's the lust of the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. Then she took of the tree and then she gave to her husband and he also ate it. Let me ask you, which of these three did Satan camp on? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or the pride of life? He got them, He hooked them with the pride of life. 
It'll make you wise. You'll be like God. You'll be able to lift yourself up in the face of God and say, I know as much as you know about good and evil. Satan attacked Adam and Eve primarily through the pride of life. And he will do the same for you and me today. It continued in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, what happened? They said, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach into heaven and let us make us a name. I don't really believe they were trying to make a tower that would reach God. I think they were just trying to show God, look, we can do anything we want to. If we put our minds together, then we can challenge God. And mankind's tendency from the beginning of time, as we've seen, has been to challenge God. I want to raise myself up, humanity says, to the level of God. Jesus would go on to say in Luke chapter 12 and verse 15, Take heed and beware of covetousness. And He says, For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. But how many people live a life dedicated to being better than the person next to them? All that motivates them is a desire to be better. We go to church and we say, I want to be better than the person sitting next to me. Uh, we, We pull up to the grocery store and we say, I want my car to be better than the car of the person next to me. We go home and we say, I want my yard to look better than the yard of the person next to me. And everything is about better, 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 better. We live a life dedicated and governed by pride. When Jesus says that's not what life ought to be about. But we're distracted by pride. And the same way that Satan distracted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden through the pride of life, so you and I can become distracted by pride. Romans 11 and verse 20, Paul says, Be not high-minded, but fear. In Romans 11, in the context, he's talking about the relationship of the Jews and Gentiles to the Gospel. And he says, now Jews, don't think because God chose the Gentiles that you've been forsaken. No, you were the original branches. He still wants you. And then he says, now Gentiles, don't think that just because He's choosing you now, that you're better than the Jews. And if we're not careful, it becomes who is better than whom? It seems like it's a race in so many aspects of life. You know, we even start to compete with our kids. You've seen these bumper stickers? You know, my kid is an honor student. And the next one says, well, my kid can beat up your kid. And it becomes about whose kid is better in what situation, in what environment, in what scenario. I'm I'm around seniors in high school a good bit, and it's astounding the level to which they buy in the competitive nature of things now, right? I'm not trying to do my best. I just want to be better than everybody else. I want to have a better ACT score than everybody else. I want to have a higher GPA than everybody doing your best? What about taking pride in who you are and what you do before God and letting everything else sort itself out? Romans 12, 16, be of the same mind one to another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estates. Now the King James needs to be cleaned up a little bit there. When it says condescend, that doesn't mean be condescending. What that means is literally get low. Get down on the level of the people who you think are lower than you and try more to be like some of them. Instead of trying to always lift yourself up to be better than other people. The pride of life distracts us 
from doing what God would have us to do. But for those of you who are married here this evening, I want you to think about something else, number two. There are a whole lot of marriages distracted by pride. A whole lot of them. Growing up in the 90s, my father was a country music fan, and I, I tried not to like country music, and I came back around, as most kids do. You know, they rebel against what their parents do, and then they come back around. We end up just like our parents 20 years later. And I remember Travis Tritt had a song called Foolish Pride. And it was about a relationship. Turn out the lights, the conversation's over. Stubborn hearts are the losers here tonight. And while the bridges burn, another hard, hard lesson's learned. As in the ashes, passion slowly dies. Chalk another love lost up to foolish pride. How many marriages struggle because of pride? Husband or the wife or both of them just can't put their pride down. And it causes so many problems in relationships, marriages distracted by pride. I want you to turn to Ephesians 5 tonight. Most of you, if you're, because you're here on a Sunday night, you are probably frequent attendees of worship. You've heard umpteen sermons from Ephesians chapter 5. But I want to remind us of something tonight. What is the bedrock of Paul's discussion of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5? I just want you to take a look at it. And I want to refresh our minds tonight. And as is always the case, and as has been the, the case such far, such, uh, thus far in this sermon, and will continue to be, I'm talking to myself too. In Ephesians chapter 5, where does the real discussion of marriage start? I, I think it starts in verse 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. That's not just in the context of marriage. Of course, the beginning of Ephesians 5 had a much broader context. But I think Paul begins to take a step towards relationships in verse 21. He says, look, the basis of every relationship is you submit yourself to each other. And if you submit yourself to each other, you don't have to worry about anything. Because I'm worried about what's best for you. You're worried about what's best for me. We're practicing the golden rule. And everything's trucking along just fine, right? That's the basis for anything else he says about marriage. Mutual submission. It's not about me. I'm not entering into a marriage so that I can have all of my needs met. So, can, so that I can have all of my wants and desires satisfied all of the time. That's not what marriage is about. It's about submitting yourself one to another in the fear of God. And if that is the bedrock and the foundation of our marriage, then everything else seems to fall in line. Verse 22. Wives. Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Let me ask you, how hard is that if we're submitting one to another in the fear of God? How hard is that? It's not hard at all. And then there's the passage in Ephesians 5 and verse 25. which says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. And then camped out on that word and gave himself for it. The word gave there means literally to give up. He surrendered himself. Husbands, if you're going to give yourselves to your family, that's the measure. Give it all. Surrender to your family. A wife who is submitting to her husband as unto the Lord. A husband who is giving himself up, who is surrendering himself to that relationship and to that marriage. There's, there's no pride there, but you know what usually happens? Well, she didn't do what I wanted to do. And, and she, she, didn't, she didn't cook the eggs. Well, I want them cooked tonight. And there's a fight about it, right? And then she says, well, well, he does this and he does that and he doesn't care about me in this way or that way. And it's pride, 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 pride. And it's two egos battling it out constantly. 
in that marriage relationship, and the end result is trouble. Pride can destroy any relationship, but it can certainly destroy the marriage relationship. Why do people in marriages not follow Ephesians 4.26 more often? When I'm doing premarital counseling, I'll turn to Ephesians 4 and I'll take them through all of those uh, aspects of conflict resolution in Ephesians 4. And it starts in verse 26. Be you angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. You know what that says? Don't stay angry. You know why people stay angry? Pride. Well, why does the husband decide, I'm just not going to talk to the wife until she apologizes? <laughs> there are second graders who do that. There really are. How many times in our lives do we act like second graders? You know why we do that? Pride. I'm too good to acknowledge fault in this situation. My wife is worse than me in this situation, and she needs to come groveling to me. And until she does, huh. pride. Even though the Bible clearly says, be you angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. You don't need to draw this thing out. Matthew 5, Matthew 18, if you have a problem with somebody, if they have a problem with you, what do you do? You go to each other, you meet in the middle. That's a Diamond Rio song. We don't talk about that too much. But it's the truth. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, Husbands, why do we not more often follow this? You husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wives from the weaker vessel, and so on and so forth. Inevitably, when I talk about what husbands need to do to learn their wives, half the, the men in the congregation roll their eyes. Or they do this. Why do they do that? When I first started at Morrison, they put me in the young adults class. I don't know why they do that. Um, which is the, the young couples class, right? And I said, what do you want us to talk about? And one guy said, don't talk about marriage. <laughs> We've heard enough of that. Really? Really? Why do we not strive more greatly to learn about our wives? Why do we not try to get in touch with all that stuff that separates us from women? Why don't we try harder at that? You know why? Pride. Stubborn, stupid pride. And it so often distracts us from growing our marriages the way that we need to. I'll be honest, I was a, I've been preaching long enough. I've not, I'm not you know, a, a well-seasoned veteran in the way that, that Tony and some others are, but I've been preaching long enough that I get a topic, and one of the first things I'll, I do is I'll open up my file folder, and I'll just type in that word. What have I, what have I done before? Let's just see. What I've done. So I typed in the word pride, and, and most of this stuff is new, but I came across uh, a sermon on 1 Corinthians. I thought, you know, it's really interesting. I haven't thought about this in a while. It, I, it was still in outline form. It didn't have PowerPoint, which means it's really old. <laughs> and uh, and I thought, you know, that's interesting. You know what one of Corinth's worst problems was? Pride. Stubborn, stupid pride. Concerning the man who had his father's wife, one of the most egregious errors in the congregation, you know what the problem was? They were puffed up. Instead of seeing this sin and saying, oh, what, this, this is horrible, this can hurt the church, this can hurt this individual, instead of saying that, they're like, huh. Look at how loving we are because we're accepting this. Or whatever the case might have been. He says, you are puffed up and have not rather mourned. The problem was pride. Stubborn pride. 
In 1 Corinthians 6, there's the instruction about going law, going to law against their brother. They were suing each other left and right. Why? Pride. I'm not going... Paul said, why would you not rather be defrauded? Why not let somebody take advantage of you just for the sake of the church? Listen to what I said. Let somebody take advantage of you for the sake of the church. Don't raise your hands. How many of you are willing to do that? If we're not willing to do that, and if we're honest... Some of us would have a hard time doing that. You know what's at work there? Pride. I'm not willing to swallow my pride over some inconsequential matter because I've always got to be right. Even if it hurts the church, I'm going to be right. And that's what was happening in Corinth. He said, you'd be better off getting the least esteemed person in the church to judge between you two instead of dragging all of the dirty laundry out into the open in the world. Why do we do that? Pride. And pride was eating away at the church at Corinth, and you see it left and right in so many circumstances. What about eating meats offered to idols? What about these conscience issues, these scruples? You want to talk about things that blow up the church today? It's scruples. Most of the stuff is stuff that's matters of opinion. Well, I feel this way about this. I feel that way about that. I heard one elder recently talk about a situation where the church almost split because somebody wanted the garbage can in one particular place in the auditorium and another person wanted another place. Really? Really? Scruples. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 1, what does Paul say relative to that? He says, knowledge puffs up. People are saying, well, I know more about this topic than you do, so I'm right. He says, you know what you ought to have instead of knowledge? How about having some love? instead. Because knowledge puffs up, but love builds up or edifies. Churches can be distracted by pride. Marriages can be distracted by pride. My entire life can be distracted and overcome by pride. In closing this evening, I'd like you to go to James chapter 4. And in James chapter 4, James talks about the, the horrible consequences of sin. And he really lays it out there for us. James is as uh, direct of a New Testament writer as you can find. The inspiration of God. Verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Why, why do we have so much strife, he says? Come they not hence even of your own lusts that war in your members? He says, you lust and you have not, you kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. Does that sound like a bunch of people motivated by pride? I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. And my wants are better than your wants, and my wants supersede what God wants out of me. Now James recognizes that, and notice what he goes on to say. He says, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it on your lusts. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that friendship of the world is enmity with, enmity with God. Have we already talked about uh, distracted by the world. We talked about that yet. I know that's on the list. Okay. So there you see them distracted by the world. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Verse 5, Do you think the Scripture saith in vain, The Spirit that dwelleth in us, in us lusteth to envy, but he giveth more grace? Wherefore he saith, listen to this, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. James was talking to a group of people who were in danger of being distracted by pride and losing their souls. 
Their pride was pushing them back into the world. Their pride was causing them to lift themselves up and believe that they could do anything they wanted to do. It was causing strife and division within the congregations in their own lives. And so what is his inspired advice to fix that? Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted, mourn, weep. In verse 10, we sing this. Humble yourselves in the sight of God. And He, He will lift you up. Notice the irony there. Instead of lifting yourself up, instead of having a life that's motivated by a desire to be better, 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 better than everybody else, instead of that kind of life, Live the kind of life where God lifts you up. Where you obey Him, you follow Him, you submit to Him, and God raises you up. That is the kind of life that God asks us to have. So as we wrap all of this up together this evening, I want you to ask yourself, have you humbled yourself before God? You think about your life. What motivates your life? You think about your marriages. What, what motivates your marriages? You look around in the church and you say, how have I been conducting myself within the church? Am I distracted by pride? Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. 1 Timothy 3, not a novice lest being lifted up with pride he fall in the condemnation of the devil. The bigger we are, the harder we fall. The higher I lift myself up, the more dangerous the fall will be. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. The key to so many of our problems today is simply humility, which is the opposite of pride. I encourage you here this morning to look at yourself. If you are faithful, faithful before God, if you are heeding His commands, if you're living the life that He asks of you, I hope that you have the self-respect and dignity of the virtuous woman. And I hope that you can march out into the world confident and proud in the gift that your God has given you. And you can reveal that to other people and let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. But it might be the case that you're here and you don't have that confidence that comes from being right with God. And you've been living a life based on foolish pride and arrogance and self-centeredness. Make it right tonight. If you're not a Christian tonight, your life is not dictated by submission to God. Believe in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Repentance by its very nature is submissive. I've done wrong and I want God to show me how to do right. Confess your faith before witnesses. Say, I'm not too proud to say that Jesus is my God. And I will devote my life to Him. Be buried with Christ in baptism. Submit yourself to God's will. And be added to the church. But if you're here tonight and you're a Christian, and your life is distracted by pride, I invite you tonight to make it right. Don't let the pride of life keep you out of heaven. Obey the gospel and be restored as together we stand and sing.